0: But before we do, I want you to consider for a moment the magnitude of what's happening in Revelation 2 and, what, and what's happening in Revelation 3. What we are reading are letters from Jesus to his church. Now he's giving this letter to John to deliver to these churches, but John is nothing more than a, a, uh, one who's dictating the message. The, the letter is from Jesus. And I find that often in church, not just in corporate church when we gather, but in in scattered church when you're at home and you're studying the word of God, that we take a lot of time to study through letters written by Paul like Ephesians and Galatians and Corinthians. But I'd like for you to consider today why it is that we don't spend as much or more time working through the letters that Jesus wrote to his churches. That's what I want you to consider as we read through here because the letter that Paul wrote that was inspired by the Holy Spirit to Ephesians is not less or more than the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Philadelphia or Laodicea. Now I suspect that one of the reasons why we don't treat these letters as as serious or given as much consideration or as time as some of the other letters in the New Testament is probably because of where these letters are buried. They're buried in the intimidating book of Revelation. But what I want you to consider today is number one, that these are letters written by Jesus to his church but number two, that they are buried within a book that you have been told is intimidating but is not actually that intimidating. Revelation was not written to scholars, to people who write commentaries, to university students or those who have their masters of divinity. Revelation was written to common people Normal, everyday folks who were going through tribulation or suffering in their local church because false teachers had creeped in and were teaching wrong doctrine. This book is for us. It's for everyday, average people. You don't need some advanced degree to understand it, and if you've been told that and the, the, for the purposes of intimidation, I wanna take that off of your shoulders because what we are reading today is an invitation from our king to consider his words about his church and what's coming in the future, and that is not hidden, secret, or confusing. It's only hidden, secret, or confusing if you buy the lie of the enemy that it is secret, intimidating, confusing, and therefore you won't approach it. But there's a reason why this book has historically always been looked at as secret, intimidating, and hard to grasp. And that's because this book contains the end of Satan. This book outlines what's coming for him And he does not want the church to know what is coming. He wants the church intimidated about his perceptions of power. And if you can live with fear and shake in your boots about the things that are happening around you, and ignore the fact that all of the things happening around you have already been spoken of in here and addressed in here, but you don't read it because you're intimidated, you will continue to live in fear and he has won and his strategy that started in the garden of intimidation will continue and he'll keep on winning and having victory. I say that because I want you to let go of that stress you have when you start diving in this book and it's gonna be even more important when we get into four and five and six and as we move forward. It's a weird book. I'll give you that. But it's only weird because of the way that John borrows symbols from his database of the Old Testament to describe to us what he sees and we're not familiar with that database. But we will be. We'll get there. And in the letters today, we have multiple references to Old Testament databases and I am really excited to share them with you. So are you ready to get into it? Let's do this. Let's go into Uh, Revelation chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 1. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received and heard, keep it and repent because if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white because they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pause there and reflect on what the Spirit was saying to Sardis and what the Spirit is saying in our day. To the church in Sardis, Jesus is saying, I know people view your church as alive, robust, thriving. I know that people in your city hear that you're growing and there's tons of people in there. I know that you've got a new building campaign and you're raising money and everybody knows all about the things that are happening and you have the perception of being alive and thriving, but I'm here to say that you are dead because your members are asleep and defiled. There's many things happening in your midst but none of them are my things. You spend all of your time doing things, but the things you do, I never asked you to do. You're doing things and stamping them with my name, all the while the things that I asked you to do that already have my name on it, you're not dealing with. You're spending your time being busy, but not busy with my things. So what I want you to do is to repent. I want you to wake up. I want you to strengthen what is dead. Now, if the church doesn't repent, there is a warning that Jesus gives to the church. And this warning is, I will come like a thief. Now what I want to do for a minute is I want to kind of dissect that phrase, because that phrase is all over the New Testament. It's found in 2 Peter 3.10, Matthew 24, 43 through 44 in the Olivet Discourse. It's found again in Revelation 16, 15. It's found in 1 Thessalonians chapter five verses one through about six or seven. And I wanna talk for a minute about what that phrase means, coming like a thief. Well, in all of those verses that I just referenced, it's talking about the second coming of Jesus and describing how that second coming will look. He will return a second time like a thief in the night, we're told in 2 Peter and Thessalonians. The imagery being that Jesus is gonna come at a time that if you're not awake and paying attention to, you're gonna miss it. A thief that comes in the middle of the night is a phrase that is essentially, the best way to think of it is kind of like a parable that reveals to all of the nations whether you are awake or whether you are asleep. That's the purpose of the parable. When Jesus says, I will come like a thief, what he's saying is, I will come like a thief, I will show up at a time And those who are ready for me will know it and those who aren't ready for me will be caught off guard. Now how do we know this is what he's talking about? Because Paul dissects this phrase in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. And what he says is this idea of being awake and asleep is the same concept as walking in darkness and walking in light. And what he says is those who walk in darkness and are asleep the Lord will return like a thief in the night. But for those who are awake, those who walk in the light, he will not return like a thief in the night. Did you catch that? Every time the phrase, he's coming like a thief in the night is used, it's used to refer to people who are asleep. He doesn't come like a thief in the night to those who are awake. If you're awake, you're not, he's not sneaking in, you're awake like a watchman on the wall, you can see him coming, you're anticipating, you can see him on the way, and when he shows up, You're cheering, yes, come on, we've been waiting for you. Marineth. come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. You're awake, you're in the light, you're excited, you're anticipating. But not everybody's like that. There are some people who are asleep. They're not anticipating the return of Jesus. They don't care what they're gonna be caught doing when he returns, and therefore they spend most of their life in bed, asleep, and when the Lord returns to them, it will be like a thief in the night. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians um, 5, 1 through 6, he says, you guys are not in darkness. He's speaking to the church. He says, you guys are not in darkness for that day to surprise you like a thief. So then let us not sleep as others do. Let us keep awake and be sober. And so that phrase, coming like a thief in the night or coming like a thief is Jesus's way of telling the church that if you don't repent, I will come to you like a thief, meaning I will show up to you and reveal that you have been asleep this whole time and you aren't really my people. That's what he's saying. When he says I will come like a thief, If he shows up like a thief, that means you were asleep. And if he's telling this church, if they don't repent, he's going to show up like a thief. He's saying, if you don't repent, if you don't wake up, when I show up, I'm not coming to get you because you're not actually my people. And the fact that you are asleep proves the fact that you aren't my people. Because my people walk in the light. My people are awake. My people are waiting for his return and they're excited for him to show up. But those who don't care go to sleep. And if a church collectively is asleep, when he returns, he will return like a thief. I want that to sink in just for a moment. I want you to, I want you to, kind of silently wrestle what Jesus is saying to a church this is a body of believers who have the name church outside of their door. And Jesus is saying, if you don't repent of what you've been doing, if you don't repent of sleeping, if you don't repent of living your life with all of these outward demonstrations of you being alive but inwardly being dead, when I do come back, I'm not coming for you. That's heavy. Maybe that's just heavy for me because I'm a pastor and I, one of my responsibilities is to care for a church, but as church members, that should be heavy on you too because churches that are asleep and that are dead but have the appearance of being alive are asleep and dead because the people within that church are asleep and dead. See, we like to think that like church is this organization and then like the organization sits over here and then the people are over here. But that's not what we're taught in the New Testament. We're taught in the New Testament that the people are the church. It's not the building, the the physical location, the organization, the 501c3, the name, the logo, that isn't the church. Those are all expressions of the church, and the church is the people. And so what Jesus is saying to this local church is you are a local building filled with people who like calling yourselves Christians, but you are asleep and you're dead. But even worse than being asleep and being dead is you like putting on the face in the city that you are alive and vibrant while you are asleep and you are dead. Which starts treading on the whole purpose of what a church is supposed to be in a local city, which is a lampstand. So Jesus is saying, churches can function and appear alive but inside they are asleep and dead because the people within the church can be asleep and dead. What a scary thought. That God has commanded his church to meet regularly. That he's commanded that his word be taught But in the midst of a group of people, gathering in his name with the word being taught, the majority of those people are not letting that word sink into their hearts. Or they have allowed the pastor who is teaching the word to be caught up in the world and therefore what he is teaching isn't actually the word. And so what's happening is that there is a regular gathering of people who are asleep. There is a regular gathering of people who are dead. What does Jesus say to a church who gathers regularly but is dead in their city is asleep to what God is actually doing, he says, wake up. He says, overcome. Overcome what? Overcome that temptation to function as a church that looks alive to the world but is dead to the things of God. Hear me. Because this is heavy. This is where we live. This is a message to us. It is a wake-up call that churches can function and look healthy and seem fine and from some metrics seem to be hitting what needs to be hit in order to function as a local church. But on the inside, there's no fire. On the inside, everything's dead and cold. On the inside, there's no desire to want a disciple. There's no desire to pray. There's no desire to worship. There's no hunger for the word outside of the local gathering. There's no talking about Jesus out in the community. There's no witnessing to other people and sharing the goodness of Jesus. All there is, is a sign out front and a lot of people being fed what they want. Their ears are being tickled and there's just enough to get them back the next week. But on the inside, they're dead. They're filled with dead men's bones. But on the outside, they're painted whitewashed. This is a Pharisee church. This is a corporation church. This is a CEO church. This is a church that functions and thrives, on business organization and leaves the things of God on the shelf that has no taste for God's supremacy because they are more concerned with the outward appearance of everything being in order while the inside is empty and dead. I pray that that weighs as heavy on you as it would have the church in Sardis because nobody's immune to this. That includes us, hear me. Nobody is immune to this. If you aren't careful, you can function as a healthy organization and stop being a church. And Jesus' message to that is to repent, stop doing that. Let's keep going in chapter three, verse seven. This says, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews but they are not, they lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word and patient endurance, I will keep from, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So the church in Philadelphia, Jesus says this, I know the persecution and the accusations that you are under. I know that there are some Jews who live in the same city as you that are claiming you don't belong to my kingdom because you aren't observing laws. And some of these Jews, as we studied last week, are actually turning you in to the Romans to be persecuted as Christians. I know what's going on. I know that there are some who call themselves Jews and say, hey, you're not a Jew. You don't practice circumcision. You don't practice the law. You're not one of us. I know that that is an accusation being made against you. But I'm going to respond in comfort by giving you three Old Testament database references that will illuminate your mind as to what I'm doing in your day. Because I know you're thinking, everywhere I look, it's just persecution, Everywhere I look, I'm being told I'm not part of your kingdom. Everywhere I look, I'm being told if I don't do this, you don't love me. What do you say about that? Jesus says, I know what they're saying, and let me respond to you from Old Testament databases. See, they think they are Jews because of their ethnicity. So what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna reach back into the the database that they are familiar with, and I'm gonna pull references to comfort you and stand against them. Now watch what he does here. Here's the first database reference. He says the key of David, verse seven, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. Where does that come from? If you've been around with us for a little while, that should sound familiar because we studied the book of Isaiah last fall and that is the database reference that Jesus is pulling from. There's a story in Isaiah 22, verses 15 through 25 I encourage you to go back and read it later. Isaiah 22, 15 through 25. And what's happening is the king of Assyria is coming to conquer Israel. And God is telling Judah, don't make foreign alliances with foreign kings. I will protect you. But Israel doesn't listen and they're convinced that if they make an alliance with Assyria, which is the nation that wants to destroy them, then they'll at least be able to keep their city and their home. The one who was responsible for the house of David, the household of the king, was a guy named Shebna. And his responsibility was to facilitate all of the equipment within the household of God. His responsibility was to make sure that all of the finances were handled well. He was basically the manager of the house. He had the metaphorical keys of the, uh, the keys of David. And his responsibility was to open and shut the door leading into the home and the storehouse of David. He was the one who you had to go to if you wanted something that the kingdom of God or the kingdom of David needed to be uh, uh, reconciled. So if you had issues with the king, the person you had to go to was the guy who held the king, the the key to the the king, which was uh, this guy named Shebna. The problem was that Shebna spent most of his time under the assumption that God was not gonna come through and their alliance with Assyria was gonna fail, and so he wanted to be remembered. So he spent most of his time and most of his resources building a nice tomb that he asked his friends to bury him in. And God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, I'm going to remove the key, the authority, from this guy named Shebna, and I'm gonna give it to a new guy named Eliakim And Isaiah says Eliakim will hold the key of the house of David and anything he opens will not be able to be shut and whatever he shuts will not be able to be opened." And here's the thing, Eliakim was Shebna's assistant. So God says, I'm gonna get rid of this guy who wants to spend more time thinking about himself and using God's resources for his own personal gain. And I'm gonna give the keys of the kingdom, the authority of the house of David to this servant named Eliakim and he will be the one who will now have the responsibility. Well, Jesus is drawing on that database reference and saying, I am the better Eliakim who now holds the keys of the kingdom of David. And the door that I open is not a literal door into the kingdom or the throne or the castle of David. The door that I open because I hold the keys to open whatever I want and close what I want, the door I'm opening is the door into the kingdom of God because I'm Jesus. And so what he's saying is he's using an Old Testament database reference to help the church get comfortable and confident in the idea that you may hear from other Jews, you're locked out of the kingdom because you don't do this and this and this. But I'm telling you as Jesus, the one who holds the keys, that I have opened the door and everybody can come right in as long as they follow me. I'm not closing the door to anybody. I, through my authority, through my power and resurrection life, has opened the door and nobody is gonna shut it. Nobody is telling you that you can't come into God's presence and enjoy the fullness of God's kingdom because I'm the one holding the key and I have the door open. That's kinda cool, huh? So the second Old Testament reference, and this is where it gets wild. He references Isaiah again. He says, these Jews, the synagogue of Satan, they are going to bow down and learn that I love you. That is a reference from Isaiah 60, verse 14, and another reference from Isaiah 43, verse four. And here's the imagery, let me paint this for you. Isaiah was prophesying that Israel would become a light to the nations, and the Gentiles from among the nations would come to Israel and worship. They would literally, the Gentiles, would come and they would bow down and they would worship in Israel. And in coming and worshiping in Israel, they would be captivated by the presence of God and they will know that Yahweh loves his people. Now, here's what's interesting about Jesus using this phrase He's speaking about this prophecy being fulfilled from ethnic Jews who refuse to submit to Jesus. Here's what's happening. The prophecy was Gentiles will come and bow down to Israel. They'll bow down and they'll worship at the feet of God. And Jesus is saying, because these Jews refuse to acknowledge Jesus as their Messiah, They have now, in essence, become the Gentiles who will come to Jesus, the true Israel, and will bow down at your feet and worship and say, I had it all wrong. He loves you like he loved us. Do you get get that? He's fulfilling the prophecy by flipping it. He's saying, and, and this is supported in Paul's argument in Romans 9, where he says, not all Israel is Israel. Not everyone who is born into this ethnic covenant is part of this covenant if you refuse to acknowledge the Messiah of the covenant. Jesus fulfills the role of Israel becomes the great Israel and his invitation when he becomes the great true Israel is everyone can come. Israel can come and be Israel and Gentiles can come and be Israel. They can come and participate in the work of Jesus because he is the true Israel. So now it's not just this ethnic location where we've got to go to this city and this temple. Now he has become in essence the true temple and he is inviting all the nations to come. And bow down and worship at his feet and learn his ways. But here's the thing. There are some Jews who refuse to acknowledge his supremacy and his lordship, and in essence, because of their refusal to do that, they have in a way made themselves Gentiles who now have to come to the feet of Jesus and bow down and say, I had it all wrong. I thought we had a lock on the kingdom of God because we had the law and we had Abraham. But now I'm understanding that when you made the promise to Abraham, the descendants of the skies was not just people who had Israeli blood running through their veins. It's any Anyone who is a, uh, a member of the covenant through faith, anyone who says, I trust Jesus to satisfy all of the things that need to be satisfied of the covenant on my behalf, and now I don't have to experience the wrath of God, I am now part of the covenant. I have, in essence, been grafted into the work of God that's been going on through the, since uh, the, the covenant was given. Are you, are you getting this? The fascinating thing about this is the way that Jesus reverses and fulfills the prophecy in a way that we didn't anticipate. Because when Isaiah is speaking this, he's thinking the nations will come and bow down to Israel and he's not wrong, it's just not how he thought it would be fulfilled. And that understanding runs all throughout the New Testament. When Matthew talks about Jesus going down out of Egypt to fulfill the prophecy that I called my son out of Egypt, what is he saying? He's saying that I called my, my son Israel out of Egypt, but, but they, they, they were a rebellious son, and so I'm going to call my true son, my true Israel up out of Egypt, and I'm gonna fulfill the covenant through them. See, there's precedent in Scripture for the one who came first to not actually inherit the promise. There's precedent in scripture for the one who's born first or comes first to not actually inherit the promise. The second one who comes along inherits the promise. Remember a story about a guy named Jacob and his brother Esau? Who is the one of the promise? The firstborn, the one who came first, or the second one? See, there's precedent in scripture for Jacob being Israel. Israel is a man. There's precedent that Israel is a man. There's precedent for Israel to be a man. Are you picking up what I'm laying down? No? You missing it? (laughs) Jacob was Israel. Jesus is the true Israel. The prophecies don't have to be twerked and, and, and mixed up and, and unfulfilled, all of them are fulfilled, but none of them are fulfilled in the ways that we thought because his wisdom surpasses our wisdom. And he said that I will be faithful to my people even though my people are unfaithful to me. That's good news for us. And that's the reason why Jesus doesn't say, you know what, I gave you a church, or I gave you a chance, Sardis, but, but you'd rather be a, a thriving organization than, than a vibrant church and a lampstand in your city, so I'm just gonna rain fireballs down on you we're done. No, he invites them to repent because he knows that his people will be unfaithful and he asks them to turn in their ways. What are they turning to? They're turning to the supremacy of Jesus and they're saying, not our ways, but your ways to be done. So I find this reference, this Old, T- Old Testament database reference to be fascinating because he's saying that there will be worship There will be people bowing down. There will be people who will declare, uh, uh, we got it all wrong. You you did love these people. But the people who are bowing down are the Jews who are now learning the gospel. That's, those are, they will be the ones who will bow down and worship Jesus. And then the last one is the pillars of the temple and the new names. This prophecy is connected to 1 Kings 7:12, when Solomon builds his temple and he puts these massive pillars up on the front and he actually names them. Jesus says, your acceptance into my kingdom because I hold the keys because I open the door because I'm inviting you as a Gentile to come down and worship at my feet. All of this is so sure that it's like the pillars that stand in the temple of Solomon's structure. They are so massive, they are so permanent that they are not going anywhere. When I invite you in, I will make that your salvation is so sure that you are not going anywhere. In fact, I will actually write my name on you. I'll put my name on you. I'll put the name of Jerusalem on you because you are my better city. I'll put my name on you. I'll claim you and you will be my possession for all eternity, which is important because that is a connection to Exodus 28, 36, 38 where Aaron as the high priest was told to wear this hat that had this inscription on the top that says, holy to the Lord. It's also a connection to Ezekiel forty-eight thirty-five, Isaiah 62, 2. There's precedent in scripture for God putting his name on things that belong to him. And where does the name go? On the forehead, and it also goes on the wrist. It is a symbol of allegiance. Who do you belong to? Is your name on your forehead or is his name on your forehead? Does your forehead say holy to the Lord or does your forehead read 666? Are you following here? We're sitting around waiting for some, uh, some microchip. I don't want to no, get a shot. I don't want to get some chip. I don't, wanna, I don't want people tracking me. They're already tracking. You got a cell phone, they know where you are. All of them, everyone, everybody knows where you are already. We're not talking about some literal, will it be a manifestation of some literal sense of it? There might be, but what John is describing, The things that are written on our foreheads and on our wrists, he's talking about the ideological assumptions or or things that we buy into that are are represented in our mind and are represented in our hands and the things we put our hands in. He's saying either God is written on you or this world is written on you. There's only two people that can own you and it's the lamb or the dragon. That's what he's saying. I just, some of you are just like, man, I'm not coming back next weekend. (laughs) Thought we were going to get microchips. <laughs> you might be careful. I'm just saying. Jesus is making it clear. It doesn't matter what anybody says. You belong to me, yes. because Jesus holds the keys of authority, full access to the kingdom, and he encourages churches who are in tribulation to overcome. Because you have a new name and a new identity. What are they going to do? Kill you? I've already promised that I'll raise you from the dead. Why is that a fear? Why are you afraid of dying when I I literally came back from the dead? I conquered that. That's not a thing to be afraid of anymore. Death has been conquered, swallowed up. There's no more worry of that. Let's get to the last letter. This is verse 14 through 22. He says, to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you either be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say... I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. See, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. I'm doing this because I love you, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. I just wanna make one little comment about that verse behold, I stand in the door and knock. That's not an evangelistic verse. That is a verse to a unfaithful church. Jesus is talking not to unbelievers. He's talking to a church that has become lukewarm and insignificant in their community. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne and I will also conquer and sit down with my father on his throne. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. So what does he say to Laodicea? He says, I know your works and I know that you're hot, you're not hot or cold. I wish you were one of those which is interesting because I've always heard it taught that he wants you hot and not cold, but that's not really what the text says. The text says, I would rather have you hot or cold. I want you one or the other, but you're neither. You're lukewarm, and that's what I have an issue with. You're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm, so I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth to show my disapproval of you. Now let's talk about hot and cold for a minute. Because this illustration has a connection to the geographic region of Laodicea. It means more than we understand it means. And it's the reason why I believe that being cold is not um, a derogatory statement against the church. It's an invitation to be hot or cold, but don't be lukewarm. And it has its connections in the idea or the fact, and we know this because of uh, excavation, um, archeological excavation of the city. Um, Laodicea didn't actually have its own water supply. It pulled water from two different cities, and that through aqueducts, and that's how the city got its water supply. The first city that it pulled water from was this city called Heropolis. And this city was known for having like um, almost like medicinal hot water springs. The water came out of the ground like boiling hot, and it had these medicinal properties. And the water from this city was pumped in via aqueduct into Laodicea. So from Heropolis, you've got this hot water that pumps into the city. And down the road is this church called Colossae. It's the church that Paul wrote the book Colossians to. And Colossae was known for having these really refreshing cold water springs. And so what they would do is they would pump the water from Colossae into Laodicea. And so what you had is Laodicea, this city, in the middle of these two other cities with water supplies and the water is pumping in, but the distance was so far but by, that by the time the water arrived in Laodicea, it wasn't hot and it wasn't cold. You don't get the, the, the hot medicinal uh, benefits of being in Heropolis, and you don't get the cold, refreshing spring water from Colossae, all you get is this lousy, lukewarm water. And this, this church had become known with lukewarm living because they became content with the lukewarm water of their water supply. It was simply Jesus' way of saying, You know, this thing that everybody knows about your city? You have become like your city. When people talk about the lukewarm water of Laodicea, it's synonymous with the lukewarm Christian witness of the church in Laodicea. You're not refreshing. You're not offering people on a weary journey some refreshing spiritual cold refreshment. You're not offering some medicinal hot water. You're not offering some some passionate revival sense of, of devotion to Jesus. You have nothing to offer because you have become like your city. You have looked around at your city, which was a thriving city. They had lots of banks. They had a really thriving clothing industry. They actually uh, also had this industry where they were known for this healing salve that they would um, use to anoint uh, things like uh, eyes who were, that were sick. They had become so like their city that they were known more for the things of the city than the things of God. And so while they were wealthy, while they were prosperous, while they were in step with their city, Jesus says, you think that you're rich and you're thriving, but you're not. What's really happening is that you're poor, you're naked, and you can't see. And so I would invite you to stop buying healing salve from the marketplace and buy it from me. I would invite you to stop buying wool and clothing from the marketplace to clothe your physical body and come to me for something to close your spiritual nakedness. You're not doing well. Come and get gold from me. Stuff that doesn't rot, that moths can't get. Come and get the real treasure and stop trying to buy the things that the world is selling to you, get your identity from Jesus and not your hometown or your country. See, cause that's real, really the invitation. The invitation that Jesus is offering is come and I will give you all the identity that you need. But, but, but what about, I've, I've been college educated, that's what people know me by, let it go. Yeah, but, but I'm wealthy. And that's what people know me in my circles of friends. And Jesus says, let it go. No, 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 Jesus, I'm a patriot. No, no, Jesus, uh, I'm, 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 I'm political on Facebook. Like, you don't understand, like, people know me because this is my identity. And Jesus is saying, let it go. What I'm offering is far superior to that little identity that you're giving yourself, church, in Laodicea, stop buying what the world is selling and calling yourself a church, because if you keep doing that, you're not my church. So repent, repent of lukewarm, secular, insignificant lives. Jesus is knocking at the door today and he wants us to respond. Overcome the temptation to settle because you already have everything. Well, there you have it. Seven churches, Revelation two and three. And out of those seven churches, two are suffering through tribulation. Three are falling into the trap of assimilating into their world and two are dealing with complacency. And these letters are shouting at us today because these are the issues that all churches for all time will wrestle with and we are wrestling with today. Churches will either suffer persecution because they're doing what Jesus said they will become irrelevant because they have assimilated into the culture and let the world tell the church what they need to be talking about to invite more people into the church, or they will fall asleep and become so insignificant that they become nothing more than another way of thinking about the world or thinking about God and we're put on a shelf with a bunch of other religions and a bunch of other ideologies and philosophies. This is the issue of the church of our day. To either do what he said and suffer the persecution for it, to let the world discipline and disciple us into what church should look like, or to say, I'm not interested in his ways or the world's ways, all I wanna do is go to sleep and not think about it. Now think about this, seven churches and only two are suffering tribulation because they're doing what Jesus told them to do. Five out of seven are struggling to stay afloat. How in the world did the church survive this century when five out of two churches couldn't do what Jesus told them to do? It's because the power doesn't reside in the church. The power resides in Jesus and he empowers his church. And it doesn't matter if there's only one left, he will empower and ignite that church to accomplish his plans because nobody is shutting that door and no one is shutting down his kingdom. And that's the invitation to go into next week. So here's what I want you to do for next week. I want you to read Revelation four and five, and I want you to just sit and behold what Jesus is showing the churches who are struggling to stay faithful to him. Because in the midst of reading what we just read, it is easy to walk away with, there is no way that this movement could survive. It's easy to read the Barner reports now that some 30% of pastors in America hold to a biblical worldview and the other 70 don't. It's easy to read the news reports about how many young people are leaving the church and ask, will there even be a church in 15, 20 years? Not will there be a church, but what will it look like? Because I promise it won't look like this. If you want to know what the church will look like over the next 15, 20, 30 years, I encourage you to start studying more about the church in China and the underground church in Iran because I have a sneaky suspicion that that's probably what we will look like rather than what we see today. Because as... The kingdom of darkness increases over time. It always spills onto the faithful believers of Jesus in the form of persecution. Churches only deal with three real things. They're dealing with tribulation because they're faithful, they're struggling with false teachers because they let the world creep in, or they're going to sleep because they've lost the desire to care. And if the, if the second two don't repent and turn, the only thing that will be left are the faithful churches and Five out of two, those odds don't look good. But then we turn into Revelation chapter four and we see a lamb who was slain. And we see an open heaven and we see a king who is ruling, and reigning and has authority over all the nations and it starts making sense. Because against persecution, false teaching and growing cold, the church will overcome. Why? Because the lamb has overcome